0: Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology podcast. This is part two on anti-Semitism, xenophobia, and racism. During this podcast, you'll be listening to the questions from our community in Denver. And as with last time, if you have little ears in the room, you might want to listen to this later. We will be talking plainly about anti-Semitism and racism and talking about ways in which this is perpetrated in our culture. I want to thank you for joining us for this season of the Birth Theology podcast. We'll be back in a month and uh, look forward to talking to you then. So here we go with the Q&A section from our time with Dr. Pam Eisenbaum.
1: So Paul was proud and happy to be a Jew and had no interest in leaving Judaism. That
2: said, how could a good Jew promote polytheism?
3: Um, so your name isn't Elder Statesman.
2: <laughs> no.
3: Okay, just,
1: it's also Rob.
3: Rob, well, okay. I just want to, I, I thought that was right, but it wasn't. Okay, so I assume you mean by polytheism here, you're thinking of Jesus. Yes. Correct? Okay. Okay. So I think for Paul, my simple answer to that is I don't think Paul thought that he was asking anyone to worship Jesus. He never uses the language of worship. He never calls Jesus a God, um, calls him Lord. But the word Lord can mean everything from like, you know, a sort of honorific, like Mr. So-and-so to, you know, an imperial Lord to it being a reverent name for God. So I don't think that Paul thought he was advocating, um any form of polytheism. That becomes an interpretation of Paul's gospel, right? That evolves later that he's advocating that when he says something like in Christ, he means he wants people to worship Christ. But I think when Paul uses language, like you should be in Christ or you should confess Christ, that word confess just means like, you know, kind of swear loyalty to, um, which you can do to a person, God, so or trust in someone. In fact, the language of faith in Christ, that word faith is the ordinary Greek word for trust. And in Greek, whenever the word, the object after the word faith is a human person and not God, it's translated as trust, not faith. So I think in a lot of places where you read faith in Jesus or faith in Christ, you we could translate it as trust in faith or trust in God. And then it wouldn't, it wouldn't sound so worshipy, you know, so much like that. So hopefully that answers your question.
4: You could also go back to the Paul was not a Christian podcast, <laughs> which is a two parter.
3: At least it's not three parts.
4: <laughs> it would have been awesome if it was four. We got to outdo the three at some point.
1: It's a good one for sure. Um, I am going to transition to Nadeem. So uh, Nadeem, I believe your question was next uh, regarding Sabbateans.
2: Yeah, I have a
4: very limited knowledge on Judaism and Sabbateans in particular, um, but I do have a keen interest in uh, trying to get to know more at this time, if you have anything to share.
1: So the question, as it was in the chat, Pam, I can kind of read it to you, is uh, with limited knowledge on Judaism, um, this is from Nadim. Do you have any opinions on Sabbateans?
3: Okay, I'm going to need to ask you to, so Sabbateans means a particular, very particular group of people from the medieval period? Are those the ones you're talking about? Or are you talking about, um, sometimes that's language used for a different ancient group. So I just want to know. Yeah, what
4: I, I think it's a form of Jewish mysticism that was found in the 15th century.
3: Okay. So that very good. Okay. That's, that's how it should appropriately be used. So let me affirm you uh, there. Um, so there was this, for those who might not know, there was this messianic figure named Sabbatai Spee, and, um, he must've been really convincing, um, because lots of people did think he was the Messiah and, uh, they followed him around and somehow he ends up, um, um, where is this convert? I'm not sure if it's, you know, Spain goes back and forth for a while between Muslim uh, leadership and Christian leadership. Um, but I'm not sure if it happens in Spain or somewhere else. But he comes, uh, he gets sort of apprehended.
5: It might be ancient Greece.
3: Pardon?
4: It might be ancient Greece, but I'm not sure either.
3: Yeah, I, I, I thought it was the Eastern Mediterranean too, but I don't, I was going to say Egypt, but that didn't sound right, so I'm not sure. But anyway, when asked to... Um, when, say, when when his Muslim captors said to him, convert or die, he opted for conversion. Um, <clears throat> so that was a disappointment uh, to some, but not to everyone. Some interpreted it as a sort of sign of something, of a sort of trans, I don't know, uh, you know, what do I want to say, a sort of mystical sort of that what he did was somehow beyond Judaism and embracing some kind of universalistic thing. And so there were some that followed him in that direction. So, um, so it, 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 it doesn't, most Jewish mysticism that survives is not to the best of my knowledge tied to Sabbatai Zvi in particular, but a lot of mystical beliefs had their origins in Spain earlier that he adopted and that some of his followers used to explain the problem of their putting so much faith in him and him turning out to become a Muslim. Um, it was a bit of cognitive dissonance. So I certainly don't know a lot about him, but he is. there's an interesting biography of him that I read years ago. It's really big, but it was very good, actually. Um, and I think it's just called Sabbatites V and the Sabbateans or something like that. Thank you. Thanks for the question.
1: Ryan, I I believe you might be up next. Okay,
4: so yeah, Pam, we've talked about this before years ago. I, I remember I I wrote a long blog post series on be it's called Be a Pharisee. And I had a colleague of mine instantly post and he said, God, I hope not. And I was trying to defend them because my whole life in, in within the Christian world specifically probably evangelicalism, if I even go back within that world, uh, really just couldn't stand Pharisees. And I think that this plays into the anti-Semitic kind of worldview that Christians find themselves in, even though they would say, oh, I'm not anti-Semitic, but really just there's this hatred towards Pharisees based on literal uh, English translations that you see Jesus bashing Pharisees. And it wasn't until I unpacked more of like, you know, what, our Pharisees, but could you, I know it's probably could be a really long conversation there, but could you help uh, people better understand the world of the Pharisees within the Second Temple Judaism?
3: Yeah, thanks for your question. It's a great question um, uh, and a good opportunity, um, and I'll try to be brief about that. So the first thing I want to say is is that um, there's a mention of some other Jewish groups in the New Testament, like the Sadducees, but they don't make an appearance very often. The Pharisees appear a lot in gospel stories and are interacting with Jesus, uh, for better and worse. One of the points I like to make with people is to say that the fact that there's so much interaction between Pharisees and Jesus indicates that the Pharisees were willing to engage Jesus in debate. That already, um, I think the Sadducees and a lot of other priests and elites didn't even Bother with Jesus. He was just a fly to be swatted away. So the fact that Pharisees engage him is already a sign, I think, that they have certain kinds of things in common. They're out there with people. So a lot of people think the Pharisees were just secluded away. And in fact, purity laws were very important to them. I can, I don't want to get too off on purity. I can explain purity a little bit more if you're interested. It's often not what people think it is. But in any case, the Pharisees were certainly very pious. They were, they were really revolutionary, as was Jesus and, Jesus, and Jesus' followers and Pharisees actually have a lot in common, even as they did different things. Both groups, just for example, believed in resurrection of the dead, and most other Jews did not believe in resurrection of the dead. Jesus and the Pharisees both believed that ordinary people could experience the presence of God, that you didn't have to be in the temple to do that. In fact, their interest in purity was largely connected toward, in a pure state, you, well, let me say this, purity laws in the Bible, in Leviticus, are are laws for priests in particular, in most cases, not for common Israelites. And the reasons priests had to be pure, it was assumed that the presence of God could only be in their midst if the humans were in a state of purity. So when the Pharisees take on very strict observance of purity rules even though they're not priests it's actually a kind of revolutionary move it's a way of democratizing saying we can all invoke the presence of god if we purify ourselves both you know literally and morally and we don't need a priest as an intermediary so i think though jesus wasn't necessarily as into purity laws as The Pharisees were, though I don't think he was as anti-purity as uh, he's often made out to be, but in any case, Jesus certainly had his own critique of the temple, probably, and the temple administration, and so I think they would have shared that as well. The Pharisees in their day are seen as being very learned because they spend a lot of time in Torah study, so they were highly literate, educated, and obsessed with texts, and Over time, I don't know that in Jesus' day that I think people consulted them, but they had no kind of consolidated authority. That will come later. The Pharisees are sort of the precursors to the rabbis of the next century, basically. So the Pharisees are really, like Jesus, reformers of Judaism in critiquing the temple and trying to democratize Jewish practice so that everyone has access to God. They also, and in my book, Paul Was Not a Christian, I have a chapter called The Flexible Pharisees, in which I argue that on many, in matters of Jewish law, it appears to be the case that the Pharisees often had a more, what we might call, liberal position than Jesus. So we know, for example, the Pharisees permitted divorce under certain circumstances. If you remember, in Jesus, it, doesn't, his his teachings about marriage and divorce occur in a couple of different places in the gospel, but um, one of them is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And Jesus basically says that anywhere the Torah later permits divorce is really not what should be observed because the first commandment of God in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and that the two should become one flesh is really the original commandment. And Jesus basically says that, you know, well, you all know it, what, what God has um, joined together, let no one put asunder. And so depending on which version of Jesus' words you take to heart, because they differ in the Gospels, it appears that Jesus did not generally favor divorce, whereas the Pharisees did. There are other places where Jesus, I think, reasons like a Pharisee and comes out with a more strict position on Jewish law. That reading, Ryan, is so upside down from where most Christians start when they're reading the Bible that I normally have to make more effort than this five-minute or seven-minute spiel <laughs> to convince people. But I think I'm pretty convincing <laughs> when we get down to it and look at particular stories and instances. So I'm actually going to do more research on Pharisees because I got asked to pursue something. And when I wrote that chapter of the book, I actually did a bunch of ex extra research into the Dead Sea Scrolls and what other Jewish sources say about Pharisees, to sort of uh, figure out how to say things about them with historical credibility, using the sources in a balanced way. But in any case, I think that the, the New Testament Gospels are one of the best sources for reconstructing who the Pharisees were, and that's an important question in Jewish history, apart from the history of Christianity, It's a very important issue in Jewish Christian relations because often Pharisees are taken as sort of the quintessential Jew at his or her worst, right? They're literalist. They're pedantic. They care about the letter of the law and they were thought of as the lawyers and judges of their day. People often did take disputes to them because they were learned in the Torah. So they're seen as being legalistic, narrow-minded. If you look up the word Pharisee in Merriam Webster, after the first definition of being a group of Jews in the first century, the next definition is a hypocrite. So that is still with us.
4: Yeah, Pam. And I think that work is going to be incredibly important just for modern Christianity today, based on the things that you've said, because I mean, that, that is always, people are blown away when they hear, what do you mean they were, they were liberal? You know, what do you mean they were aligned with Jesus's teachings and Jesus aligned to theirs? And like, but even having that, that conversation saying that they were conversation partners is it's, it's a huge shift for people. So I, I would love to, yeah, if you would, if you do publish stuff on that, let me know. Cause I want to spread that out to other people.
3: I actually even made a video for Abingdon about it, but I won't let you see it. I am so bad. Wow. <laughs> I'm Like in a studio with a set, like, you know, it's supposed to be Samaria some somewhere. And the director has me trying to walk and talk at the same time, which is really a struggle for me. i (laughs) I land on my mark and the camera was over here. And and then I'd land on my mark and I'd be saying the wrong words. And I wrote the whole script. I knew it, you know, by heart by the time we got through it. But they did all the direction. And I am, I now, I now think acting is a real job. I mean, I like, it's hard.
1: Hey, uh, Hank. I think next on the list was a question you had um, as it relates to kind of bigot- bigotry at large. Was did you did you want to hop in with a question there?
6: Oh yeah, what I'm hearing about
1: from
4: Pam, and of course everything everything we know uh, already throughout history is that bigotry is pretty complex, and probably the most complex form of bigotry I've seen is to get it's anti-Semitism. It's just, and then you've gone to explain all of this. It's, it's got its ancient historical roots. It's got oh, all kinds of stuff going on. And um, um, what can you say about that? I mean, it just seems to be Jews are very complex people overall, I think. And they're very accomplished people. But that doesn't necessarily earn them a lot of, of you know, it it, it can result in, in a
3: lot
2: of what we see.
3: I think Jews, you know, often some of the worst laws or preaching or texts that you can read about that Christians, when they wrote about Jews, that in many of those cases, those communities had no Jews. I mean, there's, there's not even, like nobody would have known a Jew. There's no Jews doing anything to anybody. It's all an act of imagination, partly based on, think about when, when, when we're talking about from Visigothic Spain in the sixth century on forward, people lived their life through the Christian liturgical year and hearing, seeing the gospel stories in stained glass windows and hearing them read and then hearing them preached on, it's the narrative you live in. I think about movies for us in our family, we have like a repertoire of favorite family movies, right? And we can convey A whole lot by just citing a line from one of those movies a whole because and my guess is when I meet someone else who You know has the same favorite movie a whole bunch is tapped into with that Well, I think for Christians They don't have movies and they don't have novels. I'm talking about ancient medieval and early modern Christians They have the Bible that story world is the milieu that they live in. That's the world because the world of imagination can be pretty real. Look at Star Wars or whatever. We, it's so present with us. It is effectively real, even if it isn't literally <laughs> physically true. So I think Jews, you're, you're absolutely right. So let me just say this, DC. Anti-Semitism, when I made all these notes in the last few days about what I would focus on with you all, it was very difficult to make up my mind. And one of them was, I wanted to talk about really ways in which we might categorize antisemitism. There was a debate whether should anti-Semitism be racism or not. You know, it used to be that Jews were not white. Somewhere in like the, the second, third of the 20th century, somebody, I don't know who, decided Jews were now white, but before that they weren't white. So, you know, for, Most of Christian history, for Christians, it was in principle a matter of religion that Jews had the wrong beliefs and did the wrong things, but they could, again, in principle, convert. When we get to the modern era and the idea of race, and in fact, the word anti-Semitism is coined by someone who wants to sort of make scientific bigotry against Jews, Someone who saw old medieval ideas that Christians had about Jews as just being, you know, superstitious and medieval, but that with the science of race, we could tell you why Jews really were parasitic on other people, why Jews really did lie and try to take your money and what literally sort of um, give science to this. And so he was not the brightest bulb, and he ends up using the term semi even though semitic peoples encompass arab peoples and jewish peoples all that kind of stuff so already the label which always meant bigotry against jews is a is an etymologically confusing thing because it doesn't include arabs and some arab peoples that have embraced anti-semitism use the word anti-semitism and by the way, in Muslim lands, there's a lot of Christian anti-Semitism, that is, it seemed to be dying down in the European West, took off in the Muslim East. <laughs> and I don't know I, I think because anti-Semitism involves religion and involves is intertwined with the story of Christianity and Islam, but particularly Christianity, you can't ever Christians let me just talk about Christians. You can't ever totally other Jews as the other, so there has to sort of be extra effort made. There's a way in which Jews are like us. Jews gives us Jews gave us Jesus. Their scriptures, like Christians were aware, they have the same, the first part, that's the same stuff we have. Christians felt inferior. You can see this in lots because they don't know Hebrew and Jews know Hebrew, and there's that sort of almost inferiority complex at times. Jews didn't wear, in most cultures they lived in, Jews didn't dress distinctively and so you see beginning sometime in the high middle ages is when you first get christian rulers who order jews to wear either certain kinds of hats or certain colors in their clothes so that they can be marked out as separate that doesn't start with the nazis it doesn't they do that during the spanish inquisition as well but it goes back even farther there was something about triangular hats i think that starts in england it's either england or france so there's a way in which I've often, and I'm not a psychologist. Some of you may know more. There's a sort of way in which the Jew is us and not us. And it's a, you know, again, I'm not a psychologist. So now I'm just speaking as me, Pam, not an expert on anything. It's some kind of internal, I feel like deep psychological conflict. By that, I mean collective psychology. Yeah, That's the, it's not very, I'm sorry, DC. That's not really much wisdom, but that's best of my thinking about it
5: Erica Graham here good to see you good to see you too Erica my husband grew up in Brick Township New Jersey which is right next to Lakewood and um, Lakewood New Jersey has a huge population of Orthodox Jews which um, me as a kid that grew up in a small farm town in Wisconsin I knew one Jewish person in my town And my husband grew up in this huge population of Orthodox Jews, which now is growing very fast um, in New Jersey. And it seems that um, um, there is some language of of these uh, Orthodox Jews maybe taking over the town. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak to that modern context of what Judaism what's happening with the Jewish community in, in these orthodox pockets, like a town like Lakewood, and and maybe how anti-Semitism is playing a role in the language that's used, and also just um, it's it's something I, I, it's very obvious when I visit my husband's hometown what's going on, but I don't know the intricacies of it all. I don't know much about it.
3: Well, thanks for your question, Erica. I I confess that I don't know very much about the Lakewood community in particular. Uh, I know a little bit more about the community in Brooklyn and a little bit more, I think it's in Schenectady or one of those kind of slightly upstate New York towns with a Native American name. (laughs) And there are kind of problems emerging, which are largely, I think, perhaps more political than theological. So I wish, so I guess my first answer is I don't have an, a good answer not knowing the circumstances in Lakewood. And I don't want to assume every community is the same. But there are places, and I suspect this could be an issue whenever you get a group that on the national scale is very much a minority, but is the dominant population in one local area. That can be very threatening. So there's a place. And it may not be connected, even some town near there where the Orthodox Jewish community made a very concerted attempt to get the school board to get themselves all on the school board so that they could then make the school calendar conform to the Jewish calendar and do things. And I remember when I was reading about it, I have to tell you, I felt a lot of eye rolling that it did. If ever there was a Jewish conspiracy, it was pretty small scale. I thought that kind of sounded like (laughs) one. It was just to change the calendar, not to, you know, pilfer everyone's money. But in in communities like that, those kinds of communities, so what's sometimes called a Haredi community, a Hasidic community, those communities are maybe best compared to the Amish or certain other maybe what we might call fundamentalist um, Christian groups. And I think those groups have more in common with each other, say than I would as a more lefty Jew would have with those folks they would still unlike christians those jews would still call me a jew but they would see me as just kind of you know lost i guess
5: that that's helpful thank you that gives me a little bit more context um just just politically speaking so thanks
1: hey mark donato we are going to jump to your question here so uh mark fire away
2: I, I think I might have asked you this before, and I'm sorry if I have, but uh, um, I was wondering if, if you looked at the Mirror Bible and if that is a translation that has some a different bias or a little bit less of that bias.
3: Okay, you're going to have to tell me. So I noticed when I started looking at the chat, yeah. uh, your question, and I wrote down Mirror Bible translation, question, question mark. I do not know it, so please Okay. It.
2: It's it's relatively new, and in in fact, it's in process, but but a whole bunch of those quotes that you put in were chapters that have already been translated, and um, so it's something that comes out of some kind of mystically-leaning contemplative Christian stuff um, that gets used a lot in that context, and I just wondered, I was hoping. That it might not have that Semitic, anti-Semitic bias. And use the word anti-Semitic
3: can you find it on the web? Is that where, cause that yeah. Like,
2: okay. yeah. And it's, um, I mean, it's, yeah, there are lots of uh, more or less complete versions, but you'll find it.
3: That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Uh,
2: Janelle, I know that you have a question
1: and I'll, uh, I'll say that selfishly I'm, I'm interested in some of the same conversation as well. So I wanted to uh, pass it over to you.
0: Yeah, I got the impression from your snippet that you were going to make a link from the anti-Semitism to the racism we're seeing against Black Americans. And I just listened to the early chapters of Stamped from the Beginning, where he talks about the evolution of the language around slavery. And it sounds very similar to the evolution of the language around anti-Semitism. So how how have those two become intertwined for us?
3: Yeah, there's a place, and when I said at the start of my talk, I'd love to talk through that more with people because I don't, I went looking for for this talk, and I have before, for a little more analysis on why, like when I see a story reported, and I can see this bizarre conflation, but no one comments on it, like in, in, in initial reports on um, the Unite the Right rally in Charleston with people saying Jews would not replace us. So it's reported in all this stuff, oh, they're taking Confederate churches down and singing Dixie and saying Jews will not replace us. And I'm thinking, I think that merits an explanation. I mean, yeah. it really doesn't seem obvious. Um, but I I think there's ways in which you, for white Americans, right, Black people... Okay. I hate almost like to put this to recite their language, but I don't know how else to talk about it unless we all know what we're talking about, but for white nationalists, they see black people as also kind of landless, even though blacks were forcibly brought here, but this makes them migratory. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So really, you know, we brought them here, but this is our land. We brought them here for a purpose and now they're trying to take over our land. You can see how the narrative, that sort of narrative, it would work to borrow from the wandering Jew, Jews are parasites, Jews are, it it works. Even though the particulars are different, they're sort of like an archetype as to how we tell our stories and understand peoples. So there's often the threat, even though there may be different kinds of, of labor, and whatnot that, right, people of color are taking our jobs. White Mm -hmm. immigrants and people of color that we need to stop illegal immigration because they're all taking our jobs. From what I read, and it's probably what most of you read, it sounds like if anybody's jobs are being taken, it's maybe some upper white color, high tech jobs. The other jobs that most immigrants are filling are jobs that white people don't typically even apply for. So, so it that's a myth. It's just, it's again, it's made, it's like Jews mm-hmm. money, you know, it's just kind of made up. But my point is that it was the same way with Jews. So for a long time, so when my father, my father is a medical doctor, when he graduated as the valedictorian at Tulane University as an undergraduate, he applied to medical school, he applied to a few different medical schools, including Tulane, he was rejected at Tulane, because the medical school at the time would only take four Jews for each entering class. I don't know how big the medical class was, but this was widely um, practiced till eventually it, and it was even legally accepted for a long time. It was a quota system because otherwise the assumption was, you know, we wasp there won't be any WASP doctors. I mean, I don't know. Again, Jews are such a small percentage of the population, and yeah, you know, they are overrepresented in the medical profession. Lots of groups gravitate towards some you don't see too many Jews in the NBA, for example. You know, so, so there are groups who tend to dominate certain, but there's a lot of comedy writers, you know, more than 2% of the population. So there are things like that, but there's no way it just demographically wouldn't work for Jews to completely take over pretty much any profession. So, but this idea that they're taking our jobs, I didn't, one of the things I didn't show you, uh, but I can send you, I collect laws that Christians instituted against Jews, and you can find these lots of reference works, but one frequent set of laws that would get issued in various places in Europe were all the professions Jews were not permitted to engage in. Mm -hmm. One list is so long, I was trying to figure out, what could they do? I mean, like there was almost, they can't be a shopkeeper, they can't make any of your stuff, any stuff that Christians would buy, they can't be doctors, they can't be surgeons, They can't make medicine. They can't import goods. They of course can't own land and farm. That just kind of goes without saying. I was like thinking, I I like almost couldn't think of, it almost seemed like designed to sort of completely impoverish, impoverish them. So I think that what happens is certain anti-Semitic things, even though they they're not now being used as against Jews, but against African-Americans, but the sort of tropes are there. They're also sort of invisibly there. I don't think most people go, hey, yeah. you use this language from Visigothic Christian Spain. It just somehow resurrects itself. It's a mystery. It's fascinating. It's a disturbing sort of mystery.
1: Thanks, Pam. Uh, I think I, we got to go to Heather here. I, she's been waiting patiently. Nate, I apologize. I know that you've got one too. Um Heather, I don't want to skip this over because I know you submitted it super early. So we'll pass it to you if you're still on.
7: So um, it actually it flows pretty well into from what you were just saying. But in one of our previous discussions, you were talking about some of the cultural rules that separated Jews into certain working classes. For example, I remember that you were talking about some of the the kosher rules that allowed. Jews to be bankers for Gentiles. Um, And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more from a biblical versus cultural perspective. And also, what is your opinion on how that power dynamic plays into the feelings of racism? Wait, okay, I'm just
3: going to need you to clarify the question. Did you say bankers or I'm I'm not, I just need you to say a little bit more because I'm not either I'm not remembering what I said, which is
7: it, it's it's an open question, but um, I just kind of in the back of my mind, someplace, remember you talking about some of the kosher laws that um, I think allowed or required um, Jews to when the Gentile versus Jew community um, came to be that like a Jew could serve as a banker to Gentiles but couldn't serve as a banker to a Jew or or that sort of thing just what those rules were and like how it's set up our current society today and then how does that power dynamic lead to the feelings of you know otherness or or racism
3: oh my gosh okay that's a now i understand your question um that's a deep and complex question and something i'd love to talk about more i'm only going to give you a short mini answer so it's not the laws of keeping kosher That's why initially I wasn't sure whether you said baker or banker. Um, But I, I now think I understand what you're saying. Yes, there were laws against lending. Both Jews and Christians observed biblical laws that I think, in Mark could tell us in Deuteronomy, I think, against issuing loans at interest or at rates that are high interest. I don't remember the exact phrasing of the law. But both Jews and Christians interpreted this to mean only applying to their own kind, you might say. So as the economy, this is pre-capitalism, but nevertheless, as economies get more complex, borrowing money becomes an integral part. Speculation, even farmers, right, have to have money, would borrow against their future yields to be able to buy the seed or hire labor to help them sow their fields. They borrow against from someone to do that, and then they will be paid back once there's a harvest. So both Jews and Christians, they set up a situation in which they end up needing each other and then mistrusting each other because everyone knows when you owe someone money, it's just not a favorable position uh, to be in. It's just sort of a, uh, you know, a situation ripe for creating resentments anyway. But what happens is in the medieval period, because this law was strictly enforced by papacy, not, that Christians could not lend other Christians money at interest. Jews get sort of used by kings as bankers. It's the one place they could really kind of be successful until the king would expel them, where kings, in order to, to put it in modern terms, build infrastructure or do anything, also needed to borrow money to do whatever he or she wanted to do. And so certain complex structural forms of dependency develop that only worsen and create a deeper linkage between Jews and money. When I mentioned all those professions Jews were excluded from, I even, there are some laws where Jews are also excluded from loaning money, from loaning anyone money. Um, But in many cases, it's it's pretty much every profession you can think of except loaning money. So I, I don't know how to say more about that, except that there are lots of complex social reasons for that. But Jews do become, for real, like this isn't just made up imagine, imaginings of Christians. In the medieval period, Jews are, there aren't really banks in our sense, but Jews are, I think I've answered that as well as I can answer that in this kind of context.
8: Nate, do you want to go ahead with your question? Sure. I had a couple of just like very small questions. Um, one of them was about, a couple of different threads that you mentioned, and, and Janelle mentioned Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning. Uh, so he talks about how in America, the idea of whiteness congealed as a sort of anti-blackness. And uh, and that's how a lot of different groups like Italians and, and the Irish and Jews all became seen as white. So I thought that's a very strange, um, <clears throat> it's very strange for people who are rallying around the c- Confederate flag, which is presumably an anti-black symbol, to be using the 14 words as, as a weapon against Jews, because, it, so I wonder if you might say a little bit about that. And then the other thing that I was curious about was, um, I don't know if you've seen this, Like, f- I saw something very recently sort of circling on Twitter, which may mean it's just nothing, but when you mentioned quotas, the abolishment of quotas uh, and sort of a more meritocratic implementation was good for uh, Jews in lots of different ways, and later good for like Asian Americans who can be overrepresented in some like, you know, admissions to MIT or something like that, right? Now that, uh, so so moving from like quota to meritocracy, then there's like, I don't know if this is a thorny moral issue or if there's an easy solution that I just am not aware of, but like in some ways affirmative action can be seen as a kind of quota. So there's this like strange balance between when minority groups are overrepresented in fields that can be good, but when they're underrepresented in like, let's say like high tiers of whatever, then that can be bad. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about that or if that has been like something that's happened more than once in history.
3: Well, I, Nate, like you, I find it a complicated subject that does affect me morally, but that I can't give you an answer about. So I don't, there was a great piece. I think it was in the New Yorker, but it could have been the Atlantic uh, by an Asian American journalist who wrote about the case that I think was resolved last year, some Asian American students, it turned out all, it was backed by, I don't know, the Koch brothers or somebody like them, um, that Asian Americans were, some Asian Americans had claimed that they should have been admitted to Harvard. It was a case in Harvard and it went to court and whatnot. a lot of Asian Americans were very uncomfortable with, The whole idea for a lot of the reasons that you're bringing up because and Harvard claimed it doesn't have a particular quota. It doesn't have like some cap that only, you know, uh, Asians can only be, you know, 18 and a half percent of the student population, whatnot. But, you know, there was also ways to, to document this article is really good because this author really takes it from all sides in a very candid way. And you come away going, this is really complicated, and there is no easy moral way out, I think. But I think for most Jews who maybe haven't, uh, for some of us who who maybe haven't thought about it as long, the thinking is it should be a pure meritocracy. That's what's best for everybody. But as we know, or at least some of us know and believe, that the world has not been a fair place. So it's just, it's not, not, the playing field isn't easy even to start with. So you can't really have a pure meritocracy if you don't have a level feel, so to speak, to begin with. And there's also other issues in diversity and education and what kind of environment you want to have for learning. So there's no easy, so and this is where when we talk about the ways in which, say, particularly anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism are weirdly intertwined. I don't wouldn't want to imply that they can be reduced to the same thing and wouldn't want to so oversimplify it. There aren't very different circumstances for the two groups so that I don't think it's, it's never as simple as we would like. Like we, we, we can't, since <laughs> so again, now I'm not speaking as an expert in, in anything really related to this. I'm just speaking as me who, who's also one baffled by the way these things overlap and also don't, know what policies I look for wisdom from others that help us parcel out the best way to have admissions policies for university. And since I'm an academic, that's the most immediate kind of thing. But that extends to other kinds of communitarian issues who, 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 the, who the local government gives the you know, cement contract to and that sort of thing, right? So um, I'm the sort of person who kind of throws up my hands the world is a really complicated place and probably one explanation isn't gonna do it. Uh, let me let me say this though. One thing I do find very interesting is that what's sometimes called reverse racism. So when uh, you you I'm sure you've all read you know the the sort of when the Black Lives Matter movement was taking off, and the response on the part of some was well all lives matter, or in the white nationalist view white lives white lives matter. Now. Of, of course, I think those of us who are sensitive to it know that Black Lives Matter was never meant to say other lives don't, don't matter, right? It's Black lives that are being threatened. But the implication was that that certain people were trying to say, see, Blacks are only looking out for their own kind and they only care about Black lives. And there's a way in which then you, you put on them that they're anti-white. This is sort of like Jews, they're really out to get us. And so when you read some of these crazy Christian laws from the medieval period, you think, boy, everything they think Jews are doing, they're doing, the Christians are doing, but they, they think the Jews are doing them. And so I think when, you know, in 1970, whatever it was, where the UN made this unfortunate, voted in this resolution that Zionism was a form of racism, I think for me, that, was, that is a bit analogous to the all lives matter kind of thing. So Zionism was construed that way to serve other people's purposes. Um, Zionism is defined as the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in their you know, that sort of thing. And while there's all, all sorts of political and social, real cultural complexity there, to label it as racism was an attempt to do the same kind of thing. And yeah. Somebody should write about that, I think, too. That's been on my mind lately, that somehow that language reminded me of that debate, which is now old. The UN rejected that resolution, but it still comes up a lot. On university campuses, you can see this slogan, Zionism is a form of racism. And I think that's unfortunate. And that comes as much from the left. The political left is from the right. I'm sorry, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs>
1: No, I I think I your your point about some of these items being items that need discernment and need thinking and need research and study and conversation I think is well taken. I want to pass it over to Jeff, um, which we'll, we'll switch gears just a little bit here, um, back into the historical
6: bit. And Jeff, you want to ask your question? Um, I think within the Jewish community, you know, we've seen as such a kind of a big moment um, when the nation of Israel was formed. Um, And I I feel like I sort of just have this like blank spot in my understanding of history from the moment of 70 AD when Rome crushed the Jewish temple to uh, kind of why the Jewish people scattered, why they didn't just sort of stay in that region or stay in that link. in that land, uh, as they were able, and why they migrated up into Europe, and that is not, of course, not to say that uh, I am very inclusive. I'm glad there are Jewish people oh, all around the world, but um, but like this blank spot, and because so much of history has been intertwined with that diaspora, I I don't know how that mm-hmm. happened.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah that's absolutely true. Well okay so first let me just say that the diaspora or Jews living you know spreading out and going and living in other places and really settling there not just sojourning for a time but living there starts 500 years before the time of Jesus basically. So when the when the Babylonians initially it doesn't happen voluntarily right? So expulsions don't start with Christians they start with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and we're now going way back right to our Old Testament history. But it appears that when Jews go, for example, to Babylon, that some of them didn't ever go back to Israel. Um, So, And we have evidence of Jewish diaspora communities around the type of Jesus, all around the Mediterranean basin and even up into the Black Sea like we have jewish inscriptions up there the black sea nobody even quite knows until we found those that there were jews up there and evidence of synagogues and stuff like that so why do Jews i don't know uh, i mean part of the problem is there so the romans after the not the the war of seventy, so the jews and the romans for the sake of everyone else have this big war um which the romans eventually win but it proves to be a harder rebellion than I think it's going to be. Anyway, but the Jews of that, of this era, rebel two more times. One right after the year 100 in a smaller rebellion in Cyprus and um, Egypt, and then a big one in 132 to 135, and after during the time of Hadrian. And after that one, Hadrian says, kicks the Jews out of Judea. So they're expelled from there for a time. And we have evidence of Jews living basically in the Levant region or what we now, you know, modern Israel roughly, continuously, and the population seems to wax and wane at times, but like there's lots of um, huge, some of them are huge, in scale synagogues, giant mosaics and whatnot from 4th, 5th century, from the period of Constantinian Christianity. So there are Jews there, but they don't, the land is controlled by Christians, and then by Muslims, and then by Christians again, and then by Muslims, so that until we get to the modern state of Israel from that time of Rome until the 20th century, it's generally, the people in political control of that land are just not Jews. It's just not even an option for them. But there are many who do live there, and in Jewish life and literature and writings, israel looms large in the imagination even for jews who are probably never going to move back there i mean as a girl at the end of every seder when we say next year in jerusalem i do remember as a little girl i said are, my parents, are we are we moving to jerusalem yep. i mean i just wanted nobody <laughs> told me uh, my parents were like no don't be ridiculous and then i was sort of like well why do we say it <laughs> and people would say it with such piety and you know so it's an um, it's a very very important it's a space in the imagination as much as it is in reality.
6: Well, thank you for helping fill that in a little bit,
1: Pam. I want to say thank you, and I know that uh, I know the group is is grateful for you sticking around a little extra time. Um, we we could go on all night, so I think I think now is probably a great place to call it. I'd like also to say that uh, that Pam and Mark. Um your topics clearly ring with the group because I think we have like dragged you, not kicking and streaming, you've both have been very willing into like almost the ten o'clock hour uh mountain time here. So um thanks for being so willing. Ryan or Janelle, you guys got anything? Yeah, for thank you, Nate. I agree. Uh so thanks, Pam.
3: Well, I wish I could know, I mean, I recognize lots of people, but others I don't, and I wish there were more time for that. I realize Zoom isn't always as quite as interactive as I would like.
1: Agreed. I think some of, I think, I think a good number of us are missing the, uh, the brewery setting, but we're grateful to have the technology that, that'll allow us to get together still here. So, and I know a lot of people are joining from all over the country. So we're so excited that, that um, people have, their topics have resonated for people. People continue to join. So um, thanks for doing that. And Ryan and Janelle, any other announcements before uh, before we call it a night?
3: When do you resume? When does or the August? Yes, the yeah, August. August? Okay.
4: Yep. There, there's a yep. remix. Remix next week too.
1: Yes. Yep. Pam, if you're on our mailing list, you'll get uh, you'll get our email about the so remix. Yes, you next guys week. are gonna
3: figure out all these deep moral, complex issues. Why? <laughs> People say Jews will not replace us while taking down, you know, or or trying to inhibit the taking down of Confederate statues. Absolutely.
1: We we solve a lot of the world's problems.
4: I I will selfishly, Mark and Pam, since you're here, starting a new new chapter locally in Waco in the coming year. I might uh, have, you know, because I I guarantee you that uh, we won't be meeting in the pubs anytime soon. So, well, actually, Texas is different.
3: Yeah, I hear. I hear. <laughs> no, I hear uh,
4: all those so red choice. states are, are on the rise, so we might as well join them. Nah, I don't. <laughs> know. I don't know. I don't know, but I would love to. You know, if you're willing to do something online with us, there.
1: Cool. Thanks, everybody. Uh, appreciate you coming and have a great rest of Thank your you night. All.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Brew Theology Podcast. We'll be back in a month. See you then. Cheers.